Thank you, May. Let us pray. Almighty God, you plucked as a brand from the burning your servant John Wesley, that he might kindle the flame of love in our hearts and illumine our minds. Grant to us, we pray, such a warming of our hearts this morning, that we, being set afire by holy love, may spread its flame to the uttermost parts of the earth, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. There were three chapels in a small town, a Presbyterian, a Roman Catholic, and a Methodist, and each church was overrun with pesky squirrels. The Presbyterian called a meeting to decide what to do about these squirrels. After much prayer and consideration, they determined that the squirrels were predestined to be there, so they shouldn't interfere with God's will. The Roman Catholic congregation got together, and after much prayer and consideration, they remembered Pope Francis's words that paradise is open to all God's creatures. So not wanting to harm them, they humanely trapped the squirrels and set them free miles out of town. But three days later, they came back. It was only the Methodists that actually found the answer to the problem. They baptized the squirrels and made them church members. And now they only ever see them at Christmas and Easter. Uh, it's probably a little bit unfair, but we do have 450 members in this church and 420 members, and they're not all here this morning. But many Methodists do become stalwarts in their churches. As someone once said, I'm a Methodist born, I'm a Methodist bred, and when I die, I'm a Methodist dead. I don't know about you, but I don't want to be a dead Methodist. I want to be a spiritually alive Methodist, part of a church and a movement that's alive too, experiencing life in all its fullness now and for all eternity as well. Could it be that there are some Methodists today who've either lost what they once had or who lack a vital ingredient in their faith? Some people speak of John and Charles Wesley as though they didn't become Christians until 1738. Keener got it right this morning. But they were committed Christians and they were called Methodists before they became alive to God in a new way. Let's be reminded for a moment of our origins as a Christian denomination, our Methodist tradition of faith. And I remind you that one of our staff members, Mark Williamson, has written a great biography of John Wesley. It's on the bookstore, and it's called A Blueprint for Revival. Uh, please don't just hear my words, but read up as part of your Aldersgate meditation. John Wesley left the family home in Epworth in Lincolnshire, and aged 10, he went to Charterhouse School in London. And then he went on to Oxford University, studying hard to become a theological scholar. His father, Samuel, encouraged him into Christian service, and his family, especially his mother, Susanna, had a huge influence upon him. So just after a year after graduating, John was ordained deacon in 1725, and three years later he was ordained a priest. 
and he returned to work with his father, Samuel, in Epworth. Religion was certainly the business of John Wesley's life. He always tried to do the right thing as a Christian. In 1729, he returned to Oxford, where he taught Greek and other subjects. But a few years earlier, in Oxford, his brother Charles had started meeting together <coughs> with Christian friends. It became known as the Holy Club. And John joined them when he got to Oxford, and he became the leader of the group. He was introduced the great George Whitfield to the group as well. And Whitfield had a significant influence on those who gathered on their discipleship. They were all nicknamed Bible moths because they were always reading their Bibles. Later, Methodists as well because they were disciplined and methodical in all they did. I know you know this, but let's reflect on it together. The Methodist movement was beginning then. They were doing all the right things, committed Christians about the work of God. But for John, there was just something missing. He was conscious of his own sinfulness, even as a priest. He was conscious that he lacked a sense of peace with God. And maybe you can identify with John. You're a Christian here this morning, and somehow you feel you lack something as a Christian. Or perhaps others think you're a Christian, you're not sure you are. Well, there's hope in this story about John Wesley, that it didn't come quickly. Could it be that God wants us, even you and me, to achieve great things? Because it was those men gathered together at that time with their sense of failure and everything that became wonderful influences in not only this country, but around the world. In 1735, the Wesley brothers received some sad news. Their father, Samuel, was dying. And so they returned home to be with him, and naturally his death impacted upon them, probably reminding them of their mortality. You know what it's like when somebody dies, that you know, you think about your own mortality. And were they ready to meet their maker? Later that year, John and Charles went off to Georgia in America to convert the Native Americans. John wanted to help others, but actually his own faith needed help. Many of you will know the story. As he sailed to America, their boat, the Simmons, hit a storm. John feared for his life, but everyone was panicking on board, except this small group of German Moravian Christians while others were despairing, they were worshipping. Despite the danger, they had a peace and a joy about them. And this deeply impressed John, as did their convictions about things like grace and salvation for all who turn to follow Christ. Well, to cut a long story short, the brothers came back from their mission trip and as Kina said, it was a failure. Uh, Charles returned in 1736, mainly because he wasn't well. He was often unwell. John had to flee an impending court case. We won't go into that. In 1737. But as Barack Obama said, not at that time, I hasten to add, <laughs> you can't let your failures define you. You have to let your failures teach you. And that's what happened. John sailed home, reflecting on his experiences. He knew something was missing. 
And in January the 24th, 1738, he wrote, I went to America to convert the Indians, but oh, who shall convert me? Both Charles and John, I say again, were good Methodists. They lacked assurance. They lacked what they'd seen in the Moravians. There was something missing. Well, it's another Moravian, Peter Bowler, who suggested to the Wesley brothers that true faith involved a personal encounter with Christ, which made John question his spiritual state all the more. This spiritual, this personal encounter. Maybe you felt the same. Methodists, yes. Christians, yes. But you feel you lack what perhaps sometimes you see in others. You lack that sense of assurance about your faith. You've longed for a deeper spiritual experience, but it's never been yours. You've envied the faith that you've seen in others. And I think today we have to be honest. Many of us Christians get so far on our journey doing and saying all the right things, but haven't really met the living Jesus in a way that has totally transformed us and absorbed us. We haven't had that sustaining relationship with him. We haven't been deeply moved by the Spirit of God, who therefore fear failure. We resist change. We don't want ourselves to change. We hold on to the past, perhaps a past experience or our tradition of faith, because those are the things we're certain in. But we somehow are not moving on with the Lord. Hearts that need either rekindling or kindling in the first place. So what is a heart-warmed Methodist? Well, Keener did a fantastic job in actually telling that story for John. 24th of May, 1738. Methodist hearts can be warmed. They can know God for themselves. And when they trust Christ alone for their salvation and surrender in humility to the Lord with an openness to the Holy Spirit, hungering for the more of God in their lives, something can happen which can transform us. Like John... Charles had been reading Martin Luther. Martin Luther's got a lot to answer for. Uh, But the preface to Galatians rather than Romans. And then he had his life-changing experience that was quite different to John's. And I think it's important to note this because God deals with this in different ways depending on who we are. These are two brothers, different in nature. John was a man of reason and logic and he had intellectual struggles. He was a man who would never make a blind judgment. But Charles was more sensitive, more receptive. His quest for peace of mind was a much more emotional one. He wrote in his journal after reading Luther's thoughts on salvation by faith alone, he was helped, uh, sorry, I am astonished that I should think that this is a new doctrine. And suddenly something started happening within him. And then he was assisted by a Mr. Bray. Uh, He was lodging in his house at the time. (laughs) I love his description of Bray. A poor, ignorant mechanic, but who knows nothing but Christ. And yet knowing him 
knows and discerns all things. And four days before John Wesley's heartwarming experience, during the night of the 20th of May, Charles was ill yet again with pleurisy. And he heard a woman come into his room and say, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, arise and believe, and thou shalt be healed of thy infirmities. It was actually Mr. Bray's sister. And through an ordinary, devout family, Charles experienced the assurance that he was looking for, for which he hungered. And in the morning of Pentecost Sunday, he found his peace with God. He rejoiced in the hope of loving Christ and immediately went and wrote the hymn, Where Shall My Wandering Soul Begin? Now, many of Charles's hymns reflected on his own experience, whereas John rarely spoke about his heartwarming. He did on one occasion. Uh, Samuel Bradburn, in his sketch of Mr. Wesley's character, did record that John Wesley once told him that his experience might almost at any time be found in the first two verses of the hymn, O Thou Who Camest From Above. It's based on Leviticus 6, verse 13. The fire shall be ever burning upon the altar, and it shall never go out. No wonder those words that Charles wrote, that John said, yes, meant such a lot to them. O thou who camest from above, the pure celestial fire impart, kindle a flame of sacred love on the mean altar of my heart. Don't worry, we're going to sing them sing. But I pray that those words may bring life to your souls today as well. Rekindle the fire. And there's an important point here, like John and Charles, and we're all different. The Lord meets us where we are. Don't look to what's happening in somebody else's life. The common thing here is the search, the hunger, the wanting to be open, the surrender to God, the recognizing of all that Jesus did upon the cross when he gave his life for you that you might find forgiveness and a new beginning, to receive that and wholly throw your weight upon the Lord. That is the common thing. But God lit the hearts, if you like, in a slightly different way. It doesn't matter how we are rekindled. But are we a people who long for the fire of the Spirit in our lives and in our church? John Wesley once said, I want to know one thing, the way to heaven. God himself has consented to teach the way. He has written it down in a book. Oh, give me that book at any price. Give me the book of God. John and Charles, together with many of the great men and women of God, were fired by the scriptures and by the Spirit. And hence, in their lives, we see the fruit of love and holiness. If you look at great people in the history of the church, they were changed. Something changed within them. And on this Aldersgate Sunday, perhaps we should ask ourselves, individually and as a church, what are we longing for? Are we open to being transformed by the Spirit of God? And another question is, what are we for? 
What are we for as a congregation, as a people? I was present at the Methodist, not president, I was present at (laughs) the Methodist conference last year when a paper was presented calling Reaffirming Our Calling, Considering the Future of the Methodist Church. And I quote these words, you may be familiar with them. The calling of the Methodist Church is to respond to the gospel of God's love in Christ and to live out its discipleship in worship and mission. Does this through worship, learning and caring, service and evangelism. That's what we're for. Any other things around the edge are, if you like, the outworkings or trappings that go with it. That's the core of it all. And our reading from 2 Peter, it's a lovely reading. God's divine power has given us everything that we need for a godly life. Everything that follows in that passage flows from that bit. God's divine power has given us everything that we need for a godly life. And Peter goes on to sketch some of those qualities. It's divine power that enables us to reach the lost, to love the least, and to bear the fruit of the emphases that we see in John and Charles's life. I once met a guy called Whitney Doe, wonderful name. He was a broadcaster and evangelist serving the Florida Conference of the United Methodist Church. He'd written a book, The Hymn Writers Are Unknown Friends. And he wrote, if John Wesley was Methodism's head, Charles was its heart. John's sermons are museum pieces now, but Charles's hymns are still vital and alive. Now, I might disagree about Wesley's uh, sermons, uh, but I accept that more people are singing Charles's hymns than read John's sermons. Charles wrote over 7,000 hymns. He preserved the theology and experience of the Wesley brothers. And Whitney Doe did an interesting thing. He sketched out five themes, which I'm going to mention very briefly, which capture the emphasis of the Methodist revival. And I long that as a church we rediscover some of these. For me, for all, for sure, for holiness, forever. For me, most of Charles Wesley's hymns are very subjective rather than objective. If you like, he was the forerunner of the modern chorus or worship song. Notice how often in his uh, writings, I, my, and me appear. And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain? For me, who him to death pursued, amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? Methodists believe all need to be saved. You need to be saved. I need to be saved. It's personal. The gospel is for me. The second thing, the gospel is for all. This refutes the Calvinistic idea that salvation is for only a few squirrels, sorry, only for a few people, rather than the heavenly banquet is prepared for all people, whoever we are, if only we'd respond to God's love in Jesus. And so our gospel lesson, wonderful passage, go out into the roads and the country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house will be for all. That's the heart of God. 
People may give excuses. That's up to them. Our job is to make it known for all people. So we get hymns like light and life to all he brings. For me, for all, for sure. The Spirit enabled John and Charles to know, to know that their sins had been forgiven. This gave them peace, confidence in the Bible's promises and enabled them to trust Christ for their eternal well-being. Hymns like, Bold I Approach, the eternal throne. Methodists believe all can know they are saved. We too can know that Jesus died for us. By his death and resurrection, we can be at peace with him. For me, for all, for sure, for holiness. And Wesley's believed that we can, we can become God's holy people. Trouble was, you see, Wesley felt he was a sinner. But we can be sanctified through the Holy Spirit. It's not our work, it's the grace of God in our hearts. But we have to believe that that can actually happen. Allow the work to take place individually and corporately. So Methodists believe that all can be saved completely. Perfect love. So we get hymns like, Thy, grace, thy nature, gracious Lord, impart. Come quickly from above, write thy new name upon my heart, thy new best name of love. And finally, for me, for all, for sure, for holiness, forever. The Wesleys saw salvation as being the forgiveness of sin, the deliverance from guilt, the gift of a new life in Christ that begins now and goes on into eternity. We are with God forever. Nothing can separate us from God's love in Christ Jesus. Our Lord will never let you go if you surrender your life to him. A never dying soul to save and fit it for the sky we have in that hymn. So on this Aldersgate Sunday, I pray that we may be reminded of our roots today. Our theological heritage Yes, many of us are Christians and Methodists. Many of us have had our hearts warmed. But do we still have the hunger? And if you've never had the hunger, can you actually be honest with yourselves that you need something more? Hunger for the more of God. Open your hearts to the fire of the Spirit. That once again the Methodist people may become that movement that John and Charles started well before their experience, but became empowered afterwards. I pray that nothing will hold us back, not our failures, not our doubts about the church, about the world that we live in, but that we will give everything, everything to our Lord and see the fire ignite, the flame of sacred love kindled, on the mean altars of even our hearts. Amen. Going to sing this hymn. Uh, it's a wonderful hymn. Remember what it meant to John and Charles. And if as we sing it, the Spirit of God has touched your heart in some way, or you feel you lack something, or a sense of failure, or you just need a new beginning, use these words as a dedication you want to, 
just move and come to the front and say, yes, this is for me today. But don't worry about how you respond. We're all different. The importance is whether we let these hymns, these words, touch our souls. Let's stand to sing.